Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this week's episode, Father Adam discusses paragraphs 1210 to 1284, What is Baptism? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! Okay, welcome everyone. This evening um, we start on paragraph 1210 of the Catechism. This is part two, the celebration of the Christian mysteries. In particular today, uh, we're covering the sacrament of baptism. What is baptism, I think, is our question of the day. So the seven sacraments are the primary form of this liturgy. The Catechism reminds us that there are seven sacraments. So there are two intro paragraphs, this larger section, section two. Section one was on the liturgy, kind of the basic principles. Section two is on the seven sacraments. And there are two paragraphs that introduce it. The first, they tell us, it tells us that um, there are seven sacraments. And then it points out a very important point about the sacraments. The seven sacraments touch all the stages and all the important moments of Christian life. They give birth and increase, healing and mission to the Christian life of faith. There is thus a certain resemblance between the stages of natural life and the stages of spiritual so um, often is the case is that um, people will describe the sacraments, and the catechism does so here, as sort of rites of passage, quote-unquote, um, rites of passage, that mark the different ages of the human person. Um, it is a reminder that Jesus Christ has come has incarnated, has taken on human nature in order to sanctify, to elevate human nature, to share in divine life. And so it's fitting that the sacraments kind of mirror the development of the human person. Birth, increase, growth, maturing, both in feeding and eating, and then also in in kind of walking and being sent and going out and going forth, maturing into the, the larger community, serving that larger community. So there is this sort of resemblance. And, it, and in this we see that Christ, through the institution of the sacraments, is sanctifying all that it means to be human, all of human life, and elevating it to share in divine life. From this perspective, if we look at the sacraments as kind of marking the development of divine life, of the spiritual life, we can separate the sacraments into three types, and that's how the, cate the catechism categorizes or organizes this material. There are three categories of sacraments. The first are what are called the sacraments of Christian initiation. 
baptism, Eucharist, and confirmation. The sacraments of service to the community and to the mission of the faithful. That's the second category. And then the sacraments of healing. That's actually what the catechism says is the second. The third is the sacrament of service. This order, while not the only one possible, and that's clear, is that we can categorize these sacraments in different ways. But this is the way that the catechism does it, is through these three categories. Does allow one to see that the sacraments form an organic whole. However, in this organic whole, and this is an important point, the Eucharist occupies a unique place as the sacrament of the sacraments. All the other sacraments are ordered to it as their end. The Eucharist is the one sacrament that all the other sacraments are pointing to and preparing. Now, it's not my custom to drag St. Thomas Aquinas into the catechism because Thomas is a though a doctor of the church is a theologian of his own right we just kind of want to focus on the catechism but Thomas says that all of the sacraments are in some way necessary some way necessary in different ways um, and and this this idea of all the sacraments pointing towards the Eucharist is, is, is something that is clear, clearly part of Thomas's teaching as well. If we use, then, these three categories, we can understand the Eucharist as somehow connecting all three of these categories. The Catechism doesn't do it in these intro sections, but when it does treat the Eucharist, it makes reference. So, the Eucharist is clearly a sacrament of initiation, by receiving the Eucharist, um, we are, are, are tangibly made in communion with the church and with Christ. It's the fullness of our initiation into the church. Sort of the, the, the apex of our initiation into the life of the church is the reception of communion, the Eucharist. Eucharist is a sacrament of healing in the sense that it forgives our venial sins. And and the Eucharist enables us to serve. It It is the food that gives us divine charity. So in that sense, we see the Eucharist as the center of the sacraments. It applies to all three of those categories. That's why it's hard to categorize the sacraments. It's why the catechism leaves open the possibility that there are other ways of categorizing the sacraments. So then we go into the sacrament of and of, of in general there's a paragraph to introduce the sacraments of Christian initiation. They are baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. They lay the foundations of every Christian life. 
they would propose that the sacraments of initiation are initi- is an initiation into the church. Because that understanding of the sacraments is horizontal. You know, so the sacraments are just there as rites of the community. It is true that they are, as we said, the sacraments are the sacraments of the church. But we neglect this vertical dimension of the sacraments. And the sacraments of initiation, first and foremost, initiate us into the divine life, into the divine life, in the life of the Trinity. It is because they initiate us into the divine life, into eternal life, that they initiate us into the life of the church. The sacrament of baptism. 1213, if you're looking for just one little paragraph to read, say you're like, I just really only have time to read one paragraph on baptism. Read 1213, it really says it all. But it says it all in one sentence, which is kind of hard to unpack. So then we have another um, 60 paragraphs to unpack that one paragraph. So first of all, and this is the structure that the catechism is going to take on all of the sacraments. So as we hit each of these over the next um, seven or eight weeks, it's going to follow the the same structure. The first question is, what is this sacrament called? What is the name of this sacrament? Well, first, it's called baptism. After the central rite by which it is carried out to baptize, the Greek baptizein, which means to plunge or to immerse. The plunge into the water symbolizes the catechumen's burial into Christ's death. The word catechumen is one who is prepared to be baptized or preparing to be baptized. From which, so this, this burial, this um, being plunged is a burial into the Christ's death, from which he rises up by resurrection. Already then we have a twofold action in baptism. A going down, a dying, and a rising. If you remember the sacraments all kind of make present are the making present of the paschal mystery, the passion, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Contained in, in, the, in the very basic understanding of baptism is a dying and a rising. The sacrament is also called washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's also called enlightenment, because by it we are enlightened. In paragraph 1216, there's this wonderful quote by Gregory Nazianzus, St. Gregory Nazianzus, which gives us all these different names for baptism. We can call baptism a gift because it is freely given to those that receive it. We can call it grace since it is a free gift that's given to us even when we're guilty. 
It is called baptism because we are buried in the water. It is called anointing because of it. We, are, we share in Christ's priestly, prophetic, and kingly office. It is called enlightenment because by baptism we radiate light. It is called clothing because of it um, our shame is veiled. And it is called seal because by it we are signed by the Lord, sealed by the Lord. So after we've gone through the names of the sacrament, we then switch to um, how it fits in the economy of salvation. This question, how it fits in the economy of, of salvation, deals with two questions. And it really is all about the institution of the sacrament. So in all of the sacraments, when we ask this question, how does it fit into the um, economy of salvation? What we're asking is, how did the Old Testament point to the sacrament? And how did Jesus Christ institute this sacrament? Or when and where did he institute this sacrament? So the paragraphs which deal with the prefiguration, how the Old Testament points to baptism, it follows a very special blessing that's used at the Easter Vigil. And it is the blessing of the water. When, wa- when the water is blessed at the Easter Vigil. And in that blessing, all of the history of God's revelation is sort of recounted, especially as it refers to water, every reference to water. And so we see that God prepares us for the sacrament of baptism throughout the Old Testament. First of all, there is the creation of water itself. We see that the the Lord, um, at one point in the creation narrative in Genesis, he breathes on the water, the Holy Spirit coming down upon the water. We hear of Noah and how people were saved from the flood of the water saved from death. In 1220, it takes, based on this idea, um, not just of, of, of Noah and the flood as destruction and death, but also as the, the water as a source of life in creation. And then in the um, Exodus narrative, you know, when Moses taps on the rock and water comes forth and the Hebrews have water to drink, that water is also a source of life. So water can be both a source of death, but also a source of life. The Catechism points to this in 1220. If water springing up from the earth symbolizes life, the water of the sea is a symbol of death that can represent the mystery of the cross. So in baptism, we see both the cross and the resurrection. By this symbolism, baptism signifies communion with Christ's death, the idea of the flood and of 
the death of the sea. But the, the idea of water springing up from the earth as life giving too. We see the crossing of the Red Sea points to baptism. And then finally, when the people are finished with their journey from Egypt after those 40 years, they cross the Jordan into the promised land. This too points to baptism. How does Christ institute baptism? Well, two points are pointed to. First of all, Christ's own baptism. In 1223, we see that Christ's baptism, or the reference to baptism, we could say that baptism is instituted throughout Christ's public work and paschal mystery. Why? His public work begins with his baptism in the Jordan by John. The last thing Jesus says after the resurrection, before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, is that he sends forth his apostles, telling them to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of Christ's public ministry is in some way about instituting the sacrament of baptism. But most especially his baptism in the Jordan, in that the Lord voluntarily submits himself. He didn't need to be baptized. Why does he do it? The catechism tells us in order to fulfill the righteousness, Jesus' gesture is a manifestation of his self-emptying, of his humility. So um, we can say that um, this is sort of a corrective of, of some who might say that Jesus became sin, you know, that he experienced some sort of condemnation or some sort of um, damnation. Um, Some people would say that that's why he has been baptized and that's ultimately why he had to die, that um, he kind of took on damnation itself. But really what we would say is that the gesture of his baptism, as is the gesture of his death, is a sign of humility, a self-emptying, so that he might um, empathize and share in our condition. Not in our guilt, but in, in sympathy and solidarity with us, in humility. Then the Catechism tells us in 1225 that in his Passover, Christ opened to all men the fountain of baptism. The blood and the water that flowed from the pierced side of the crucified Christ, or Jesus, are types of baptism and the Eucharist, the sacraments of new life. So when we want to point to when did Jesus institute the sacrament of baptism, we say at his own baptism, and then on the cross. It is on the cross that every sacrament is instituted. So if we're looking, you know, maybe we want to create some elaborate chart, or, uh, which I once did back in the day, but it was on like um, Microsoft Word 95 and that no longer, you can no longer find any sort of software 
that will allow you to read it. I think it was even a floppy disk that I used. Um, but in that chart, you know, you want to know where is every sacrament instituted in Scripture? Well, you know, in this case, you know, the baptism of the Lord in the Jordan. But the easy answer for every, when was every sacrament instituted? It was on the cross. That's when Christ makes the sacraments effective, is by his death on the cross. In this section asking how baptism fits into the divine economy, it looks at how the Old Testament prefigures, how Christ institutes, and then what's the evidence, the signs of this sacrament in the early church in the New Testament? Well, baptism is referenced at the very beginning um, in Acts of the Apostles in Peter's homily after Pentecost. He references baptism and the need for baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. St. Paul says that believers enter through baptism into communion with Christ's death and is buried with him and rises with him. So then the third question is, how is this sacrament of baptism celebrated? So if you remember our definition that a sacrament, this is the old Baltimore Catechism definition, which is easier for me to ramble off than um, the, the current catechisms. But as I said earlier, a couple weeks ago, they're reconcilable. They're the same, same definition. Outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Every sacrament is instituted by Christ. It's prefigured in the Old Testament. Christ institutes it. We see it in the life of the early church. We've done that tonight already with baptism. We just did that. Every sacrament has an outward sign. That means it has a form, words that are said. Some of those words are really nice and beautiful, but not necessary. Some of them are essential. So the form includes words, and then it includes actions. Some actions are nice and beautiful, but not necessary, and then some are essential. This question also deals with who can give it and who can receive. Every sacrament deals with these questions about the outward sign. If you remember earlier, just to kind of um, reference earlier um, in the catechism, we call this outward sign, we use the word sacramentum for that. Sacrament. The third part, the grace... We call that the mysterium. So this section of the catechism is now going to deal with the outward sign. So first of all, um, it deals with the question, 
of, um, of Christian initiation. From the time of the apostles, becoming a Christian has been accomplished by a journey and initiation in several stages. The journey um, can be covered rapidly or slowly, but certain essential elements will always have to be present. The proclamation of the word, the acceptance of the gospel, entailing a conversion of life, profession of faith, baptism itself, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the admission to Eucharistic communion. So the question is, is how do, what is required for one to be a Christian? Well, there it is, there's a nice little summary. You, you have to hear the word. The word has to be proclaimed to us. We have to accept it, and that entails conversion. We have to profess this faith that we have submitted, that we accept this faith. We, be ba- we have to be baptized, the Holy Spirit poured out upon us, and then admitted into Eucharistic communion. The initiation has varied greatly throughout the history of the church. There is this process called the catechumenate which has developed over time, the process by which one is initiated through through these steps and stages. But there's also this this practice of infant baptism. Infant baptism. By its very nature, infant baptism requires a post-baptismal catechumenate. So we don't just baptize children and then expect it all that, that that's sufficient. There has to be this ongoing proclamation of the word, profession of faith, call to conversion, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, admission into Eucharistic communion after baptism. So why, what, why is it that in this instance with infants or with, with young children, that baptism is moved before some of those other steps. Um, well, the catechism is going to explain this to us, but essentially it, it points to the necessity of baptism and also to the free gift that baptism is. Free gift in the sense of a pure grace, an unmerited grace. So, in both cases, we, we hear that baptism is not the end of the story. Rather, it, whether it be adult catechumenate or infant baptism, there is an ongoing process that continues after baptism that entails catechesis. Thus, we're here tonight. We're listening on the radio. There's also different practices when it even comes to infant baptism. So, for instance, in the Eastern Rites, um, with infants, after baptism, confirmation and the Eucharist are immediately given. While in the West, in the Latin Church, it's been our custom to delay after catechesis confirmation 
and the Eucharist. Then the Catechism talks about the mystery of the celebration. So it's all um, kind of preparing ourselves for um, this outward sign of how the sacrament is celebrated. So first of all, baptism is part of this process of conversion, which is really a whole lifelong process, this whole process of initiation. Then there is the, the actual rite itself, the mystagogy of the celebration. As I count in the catechism, there are 11 steps to the rite of baptism that it points out. So essentially in these paragraphs 1234 through 1245, it just tells you what is a part of the baptism rite, what happens at a baptism. So maybe um, you're preparing for the baptism of your child or your uh, potential godparent preparing for it. Um, you can read these paragraphs and you'll know what you're going to see, what's going to happen. So first of all, as with all things, there is the beginning, the sign of the cross. The child himself is signed, marked with the cross. Second, the word of God is proclaimed. If you remember that the word of God is an integral part of the liturgy, hearing the word proclaimed should be a part of all of our sacramental celebrations. Third, there's an exorcism which is done at every baptism. So this child, although they may not look like it, look like it um, are really under the authority of Satan at that point. Um, and so the child is exercised. The fourth step is the confession of faith, the baptismal promises. The fifth is the, the, the blessing of the water. The sixth is what is called the essential rite. If you remember, I said that there are some words and actions which are nice and good, but not necessary, and then there are some that are absolutely essential, that if they're not done, the sacrament is not valid. It hasn't been done. The essential rite of baptism follows, the catechism tells us. Baptism, properly speaking, it signifies and actually brings about the death Baptism is performed in the most expressive way by triple immersion in the baptismal water. However, from the ancient times, it has also been able to be conferred by the pouring of water three times over the candidate's head. So you can dunk them or immerse them three times, or you can pour water over their head three times. In the Western Church, we insist that as you do that, you say the name of the person. I baptize you in the name of the Father, dunk or poor, and of the Holy Spirit, dunk or poor. Oh, excuse me, and of the Son, dunk or poor, and of the Holy Spirit, dunk or poor. There's a slightly different, they say this in the Eastern Churches, they say servant of God is baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
That's the essential. That's what, so the pouring or dunking and the saying of I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the proper form and matter of the sacrament. The proper word and action. The matter, we should say, is the water. After baptism, after this, the essential rite, there's anointing with sacred chrism as priest, prophet, and king. Then a white garment is given and a candle is lit. And then finally, or then tenth, the Our Father is prayed, indicating that this child is now a child of the Heavenly Father but also pointing to the gift of communion, the sacrament of communion down the road if it's an infant. And then finally it ends with a solemn blessing. So that's the rite itself. Now, who can receive baptism? Well, 1246, nice one sentence Every person not yet baptized, and only such a person, is able to be baptized. In the case of baptism of adults, we've talked about this catechumenate, this process of formation for those. It points out that catechumens, people who have been designated as preparing to receive the sacrament of baptism, are already somehow joined to the church. They are a part of the household of God already. So there's a a formal introduction. We call this, of course, um, in America, we we throw out this phrase all the time, RCIA. You know, people announce, you know, well, RCIA will be Tuesday night at 5 o'clock. And people who aren't Catholic are like, well, what the heck's RCIA? Well, that's where they're supposed to go if, um, if... Um, If you don't know what the word RCIA means, or the phrase RCIA means, then you probably should go to RCIA. Um, But we don't don't ever define that. It's this sort of Catholic ease that we use all the time. Um, But rite of Christian initiation of adults, it is this process by which one um, who who is interested or desirous of entering into the church starts the process of becoming a catechumen, is a catechumen, and then is eventually baptized. But we use this, this word, this phrase, RCIA. But that's the whole process. The, um, so we say that adults can receive baptism if they haven't been baptized. Infants can receive baptism if they haven't been baptized. And this um, section, paragraph 1250 through 1252, points to the practice. So if we want to be able to render an account of why we baptize infants, these three paragraphs, I think, are very helpful. 1250, born with a fallen human nature and tainted by original sin, children also have a need of new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of children of God. The sheer gratuitousness of the grace of salvation is particularly manifest in infant baptism. 
The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. The practice of infant baptism is the best example of why Catholics are not Pelagians, that we believe in the sheer gratuitous gift of salvation, of justification, of grace, that it's unmerited, that an infant child who does not have the practice of its own free choice or free will is given faith and given salvation and justification even without them saying yes, that the church supplies this faith, the parents supply this faith for the child, asking for this gift, this unmerited gift for this child. Infant baptism is our, I think, is our strongest argument, one of our strongest arguments for why we reject Pelagianism this idea that we somehow can earn our own salvation. 1252, the practice of infant baptism is an immemorial tradition of the church. There is explicit explicit testimony of this practice from the second century. And even in the apostolic preaching in the Acts of the Apostles and other points, we hear about how whole households received baptism which included um, not just the slaves, the adults, but also presumably the infants and the children of that household. And then 1253 through 1255 connects this idea of faith and baptism. Baptism is the sacrament of faith. But faith needs the community of believers. It is only within the faith of the church that each of the faithful can believe. The faith required for baptism is not a perfect and mature faith, but a beginning that is called to develop. The catechumen or the godparent is asked, what do you ask of God's church? And the response is faith, faith. So, Baptism is the baptism of faith, a sacrament of faith, in the sense that it is a gift that is given. Faith is given in baptism. It reveals to us, baptism reveals to us a dimension, several dimensions of faith. If you remember earlier, last semester, when we looked at this structure, man seeks God, God reveals himself, through revelation, and then man responds to the gift of revelation, the catechism defines that as faith. And faith is this rich, multifaceted reality. Faith is both personal, I have to make an individual submission to Christ, I have to subjectively accept what Christ has done for me, but faith is also communal that it's handed on to me from the church and that I profess the faith, that I come to accept the faith within the community of the church, the community of believers. Um, We're also reminded by baptism that um, faith is something 
that I do, you know, in the sense that I submit myself. I, I accept what God has revealed himself, what, his, what he has revealed. I freely accept this. Um, but it's also a pure gift, a pure gift of grace that's handed on to us. Bapt- the, um, this proper understanding of baptism then um, contains all of these different facets of faith. And the different aspects, say the catechumenate adult, um, baptism of adults, or baptism of infants, these things, um, these different practices aren't contradictory. They reveal the beautiful different dimensions of faith itself. That it's this rich, um, richly, um, richly carved diamond, you know, um, um, what do they do to diamonds? Chip or edge, you know, whatever. Cut, yeah. It's this, um, faith is this beautifully cut diamond with all of these different facets. Um, and baptism and our practice of baptism and all of the, the different elements of the rite of baptism reveal all of these different facets of faith, of what faith is. For all the baptized, children or adults, faith must grow after baptism. For the grace of baptism to unfold, the parents' help is important. So too is the role of Godfather and Godmother to help them, to kind of Uh, allow this faith to grow. Faith is, in some ways, a beginning. It is a first choice. But it's also something which flowers and which grows and which continues throughout my life. It's not just one act. But it's a continual group of acts. Point five, who can baptize? It's still kind of under the outward sign of baptism. So we have looked at who can receive. We've looked at the rite itself, the words and the actions, and even the matter of baptism. But now we say, who can baptize? The ordinary ministers of baptism are bishops and priests, and in the Latin church, deacons. So in the West, we allow deacons to baptize. However, however, in an emergency, anyone, even a non-baptized person, as long as they have the intention to do what the church wants and use the, fro- the essential words and actions, um, they can do baptism. So even someone who's not baptized can baptize someone because this sacrament is so important. And that leads into the necessity of baptism. As Thomas says, and the Catechism will say this, all of the sacraments are in some ways necessary, but necessary in different ways and for different reasons. The Lord affirms, the Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary. Unless we are born of water and the Holy Spirit, we shall not have eternal life. We shall not have life within us. But paragraph 1257 reminds us, God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism 
but he himself is not bound by his sacraments. So we know that in order to be saved, we have to be baptized. We know that. We're, we're bound to do that because that's how salvation works. But God, in his mystery and in his desire that all might be saved, is, of course, not bound by the sacrament himself. And so in the church's understanding, we have seen what's called a baptism of blood. So if a catechumen or even someone desirous of of being part of the church sheds their blood... Are, are martyred for Christ, they receive the grace of baptism. What that is. And then second, there is this um, baptism by desire. Someone desires to be baptized, but they die before they can receive it. Of course, you know, urgently trying to receive the baptism. You know, it's one thing you know, to say, well, you know, you know, I want to be baptized, but I'll wait till I'm about dead, you know, before I do it. Well, you know, something may happen, you know. For instance, you know, catechumens, 1259, catechumens who die before baptism have this, this desire to be baptized. They're a great example of this. Every man who is ignorant of the gospel of Christ and of his church, but seeks the truth and does the will of God in accordance with his understanding of it, can be saved. We talked about this in the section on the church. Um, It may be supposed that such a person would have desired baptism explicitly if they had known it necessarily, known its necessity. So, the Catechism, again, dresses this idea is if someone is sincerely seeking God, seeking the truth, seeking goodness, but has no um, knowledge of Christ, no knowledge of the church, and no knowledge of the necessity of baptism, we presume that if they were, we can presume that if they were still open to the truth, that if they would have known the need of baptism, they would have desired baptism. This point gives us an openness to understand the possibility of how the Lord might work in these situations. It doesn't give us a guarantee that that's sufficient. Let me make that um, clear in another way. Is um, we, we have a reasonable uncertainty about people who do not, you know, who are good, who are trying to kind of follow the truth and goodness. We have a reasonable uncertainty about um, their knowledge, you know, like their, their, sincere, their sincerity, their, their, their seeking of the truth. Um, we presume, we have to presume the good that, that in some ways they, if, if they did know of the need of baptism, 
the need for Christ, the need for his church, that they would want these things. Um, but again, we don't have an absolute certainty that, that, that that's what they're seeking, you know, that that's, that that's what they would want. Um, and so we still try to give them explicit knowledge of Jesus Christ, of his church, and of the need of baptism. So the catechism is giving us a way to, um, to charitably understand what might happen to people who don't, need of the need of, who don't know of the need of baptism. What the catechism is not telling us is that we should leave people in their ignorance. We should let them know of the need of baptism through the, you know, the best, most charitable way that we can present this truth. Twelve sixty one then goes to another point. So that we thought that one was, you know, maybe somewhat controversial. Although I don't think it's it's too controversial. You know, is is to hope that those who have lived a life open to truth and goodness would would want baptism if they knew it was necessary. Um, the other one is, is I think, a, a very sticky point, and, and I think it bears reading. 1261, as regards to children who have died without baptism, the church can only entrust them to the mercy of God as she does in her funeral rites for them. Indeed, the great mercy of God who desires that all men should be saved and Jesus' tenderness toward children which caused him to say, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. Allow us to hope that there is a way of salvation for children who have died without baptism. All the more urgent is the church's call not to prevent little children coming to Christ through the gift of holy baptism. So the catechism Although it doesn't say this explicitly in this paragraph, it has made reference to this, that children need baptism. Um, They need baptism because they are in sin. They're in original sin. Um, And in that, you know, in that there's the potential of being damned. Um, But there is ground for hope based on the Lord's tender love for children based on what he said, let the children come unto me, um, that he desires the salvation of these children. Um, That there is hope, there is room for hope for the salvation for these children. There is not, just as in the previous paragraph, there is not a guarantee, a guarantee of salvation. There's a room for hope for salvation. And what we want to emphasize is the need to baptize children. We want to emphasize we need to get this done. We don't want to put this off. There's a certain urgency and the necessity to do this. Just in the previous paragraph, baptism is necessary for salvation. We hope that those who are ignorant of that need, 
that the Lord gives them his mercy. The same with children. The children who haven't received this great gift, that the Lord is merciful with them. And we have room to hope for that. Um, But we need to baptize people. And we need to let people know that baptism is necessary. And we need to baptize children. The last paragraphs deal with the the grace of the sacrament. There are two principal effects of the sacrament. Purification from sins and new birth in the Holy Spirit. So if you remember death and resurrection, death and resurrection, dying and rising, giving life from the springs of water, drowning in the um, sea, These two kind of fold motions with water. In the same way with the graces, and now we're um, the third part of the sacrament, outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. We now talk about the mysterium, the grace of the sacrament, the invisible reality. We can describe them in two ways. First of all, there's a purification of sin, a drowning, a dying, the cross. But there is also a new birth in the Spirit that comes from baptism, a rising, a springing forth of new life. For the forgiveness of sin, baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin, all personal sins, as well as the punishment for sins. So there are punishments due for every sin that we commit. However, the Catechism says that even though all of these sins are forgiven and the punishment due them is is forgiven, there are still temporal consequences of sin that remain. After we're baptized, we still feel the effects of the fall. We're restored in our relationship with the Father, However, there's still suffering, there's still illness, there's still death. There's still a weakness of character. There is still what we call concupiscence. Concupiscence. We talked about this when we covered the fall of, of, of the human person um, in the creed section of the catechism. Concupiscence is that inclination to sin. We're still kind of disposed to sin. It's not sin itself, but it's sort of an an inclination to it. The catechism then says um, that, you know, having dealt with the forgiveness of sins um, effect or grace of the sacrament, there's also this new creation. How are we a new creature by baptism? Well, we're adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. We become partakers in divine nature. We become a member of Christ and his body and a co-heir with him to the inheritance of our Heavenly Father. And we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, we receive what is called sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace Also, the catechism calls it the grace of justification. What does this grace do? 
It enables us to believe in God, to hope in him, and to love him. So it gives us the theological virtues. Sanctifying grace is a share in the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Second, this grace of justification, sanctifying grace, gives us the power to live and act under the prompting of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Sanctifying grace is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within us, prompts us, guides us, moves us, and gives us his gifts. And then third, sanctifying grace, or this grace of justification, allows us to grow in goodness through the moral virtues. I.e., it allows us to merit more grace, to, to grow in sanctification. We are um, incorporated into the church, the body of Christ, by baptism. We receive the three munera, munera, M-U-N-E-R-A, munera. It means an office, an office. There are three of them, the priesthood, the prophetic office, and the kingly, the royal office, priest, prophet, and king. They're the three offices of Jesus Christ. Because we are united to him by baptism, we share in those three offices. We share in his priesthood. We share in his prophetic work. We share in his kingship. 1269 is one of my favorite paragraphs. Um, or, um, at least it is today. Um, it says, having become a member of the church, the person baptized belongs no longer to himself, but to him who died and rose for us. For now on, he is called to be subject to others, to serve them in community. By baptism, we become slaves of Jesus Christ, is what this paragraph is telling us. And as such, slaves of others. Throughout the New Testament, in the letters, Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, they refer to themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves of their, of their fellow Christians. By baptism, we become these, this, these slaves of others. But with that, we also, with these sort of um, duties and responsibilities, we also receive rights. By baptism, R-I-G-H-T-S, not R-I-T-E-S, R-I-G-H-T-S. Duties and rights. The rights that we receive by baptism is that we have a right to receive the sacraments. We have a right to be nourished with the Word of God. And we have a right to be sustained by the other spiritual helps of the church. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.